Welcome. <laughs> you have entered Crime Colts and Coffee. This is Kelsey. And this is Bryn. Okay, that was weird. <laughs> so, we're very tired right now. <laughs> <laughs> it might be insanity. Yeah. Probably borderline madness. But who knows? As I pull up my sports bra. <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> All right, so do we have anything we want to talk about before we get into our coffee review this week? Hmm. I feel like my voice sounds strange. You sound like, um, you sound like a news reporter. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Do you have anything exciting happened? I pulled my back out yesterday, I think. How'd you do this? I was moving a patient's table at work. Oh my god. To plug it in. And oh my god, yeah, I think I pulled my back out. Well, that sucks. Yeah, we're super cuddly right now, though. Well, on a high have, note, we have a bunch of blankets. <laughs> my slippies are on, I have fuzzy socks on, a sweatshirt, <laughs> <laughs> like yoga pants. Very cozy. Yeah, today was kind of rainy and dreary, dreary out. It was very dreary, but it was kind but of in a cozy warm. way. Yeah, yeah. I in didn't a cozy do much way. Today. I just worked. It was relaxing. I watched Riverdale, actually. You did. It was really good. (laughs) I need to catch up. I'm obsessed with Riverdale. Oh, something exciting that I'm doing in the month of June. Yeah, talk about it. Yeah, so my friend owns a studio, and she asked me to do tea and tarot, a workshop for her people, her community there. So So I'm going to be doing that in June. I'm very excited for it. And I actually asked her to come on to our podcast at some point because she's very, very spiritual and, like, witchy. Aww, I would yeah. love that. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Go here, Bryn, read your tarot cards. <laughs> <laughs> she's really fucking good at it. Thank you. And very accurate. It's sometimes scary. <laughs> but Thank good. You. In a good I enjoy way. it. I enjoy it. Yeah. So, coffee review. Yeah, so we have today, dun, 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 cars. Cars Coffee! We have another Cars today. Um, Today's blend is actually uh, another sample blend. This is the second sample blend that they sent to us. It was labeled sample blend one. Yeah. But But it's the second one we're reviewing that is a sample. Yeah. And if you want to hear all about Cars and who they are and all about their company, go back to episodes 15, 18, and 26. We have reviewed them a bunch of times yes. and have all different ratings for their coffees, all different reviews for their coffees. Specifically in episode 15 is where we got into like the main about them. So yeah. go back to that episode if you want to hear about Cars Coffee. Check them out. Yes. So yeah, we have sample blend technically number one today. Yeah. Um, and we were accurate about sample blend number two. I want to point that out. In the last episode, we said, oh my god, we feel like sample blend two tastes a lot like the Guatemalan blend. Right, the one they sent us. And they ended up messaging us because, uh, Paul, one of their owners, listens to our podcast and he's like, actually, you're right. Actually, yeah, that was one of the coffees in your sample blend. I'm honored. Yeah, that was awesome. I was like, oh wow, we're getting... Wow. You know? <laughs> our taste buds. Yeah. They're getting good. Yeah. So, let's get into our coffee review. Yeah. What do you think? Mm. So, 
It is, like we have said in the past, um, a neutral coffee. It's not flavored. I think right off the bat, it's a medium roast, though. Yeah, definitely, because um, we like it. I really like it. <laughs> I love medium roast. Yeah. Um, it's definitely a medium roast coffee, though, uh, but it has a lot of flavor to it. It's not, you know, um, watered down mm-hmm. or... It's it's pretty it's bold bland for or a medium anything. roast. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like it. Yeah. I think it's also... Okay, I'm saying this as a compliment. This is the best way I can describe it. And I'm just <laughs> going to say it because I was debating it before. I, if you're from New Jersey, you know what I'm saying. Okay. We, in New Jersey, take pride in our diners. Yeah. There's diners everywhere. Everywhere you go, 24-7 diners. Right. And this reminds me of a good cup of, like, diner coffee. Mm-hmm. I enjoy diner coffee, but I'm saying it in a way where it's, like, ho- a homey feel. Like, comfort. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's flavorful in a good way, even though it's an unflavored coffee, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. See, <laughs> in a nutshell. I guess I, in Pittsburgh, I guess um, diners aren't as big, mm-hmm. but... I see where you're coming from. I just wouldn't have thought of that yeah, connection. Yeah, that's, like that's, like, the best way I can describe it, and I hope Cars takes that as a compliment because I am complimenting them by saying it. Like, yeah. when I smell it and when I drink it, that's what comes to mind, and it's, like, Like, a, you're at a cozy diner. Yeah and, yeah, and their coffee is good. Like, it's a diner with good coffee. Yeah. Um, I don't know how else to describe it besides that. How would you rate and it? And being flavorful. I think... I would go with a 6.5 today because yeah. I don't want to get a little help ahead of myself. The Tanzania pea bear is still my favorite from them. I agree. I yeah. still love that one. Yeah. Um, I'd probably give it a 6.5 as well. Yeah, Tanzania is what is my favorite from, from cars that we've tried so far. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so... Yeah, so thank you, Cars, again. We loved all the coffee you sent us, and we are so appreciative. We can't wait to collab with you guys on things in the future down the road. Yes, we will be in touch. Yeah, so grab your coffee and have a morning with us. Okay, podcast people. (laughs) (laughs) Today's episode was another listener-recommended story, and this one, again, was sent in by the lovely Julie. Julie, we love you. Everyone (laughs) else, step it up. Start sending shit into us, please. She is on top of her shit. She is. She's like girls. Sends me TikToks left and right, (laughs) (laughs) and I don't have TikTok, but I enjoy them. Um, So, yes, today we are going to be covering the case of the lost children of the Alleghenies. Mm, (laughs) Spooky music. (laughs) So we'll start off with the background of the two um, people that are the stories about Joseph and George Cox. Joseph is five years old at the time, and George was seven years old at this time. Uh, Their parents were Samuel and Susanna Cox, and the Cox family lived in Pavia, Pennsylvania, in a cabin that Samuel actually built in the wilderness. And yeah, it was known as Spruce Hollow. The area was very very heavily forested at the time, as logging had not yet begun around that area. This is technically in Bedford County, uh, so if you're from the area, you would know Bedford County, near the intersection of Cambria and Somerset and Blair County lines. Um, from the Appalachia region of the United States, there's Appalachia. that damn word again. <laughs> Appalachia. In the past, I would have said Appalachia. Yeah. Appalachia. Appalachia. 
Yeah. It's Appalachia, apparently. Samuel and Susanna married in Johnstown, and they moved after their first son, George, was born, who, remember, he is seven years old at this time. Mm -hmm. They traveled around for a bit. I heard that they had some struggles trying to settle, and they moved to Indiana for a little while, uh, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Um, but then they ended up settling back um, in Pavia, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So... This included, like I said, living in Indiana for a period of time. They were also seen as pioneers wanting to make their own way in the world. So they were trying to find their way. They were young, um, just trying to settle down. As this area did not have much settlement yet, at night you could hear panthers and mountain lions. And during the day there were apparently like rattlesnakes everywhere. Which is horrifying. That is terrifying, especially with little kids running around. Right, to have and to like worry about that. Thinking of the area because I know of the area. That's like horrifying to to think that those things were lurking. So you know the area. So what is it like now? Is there as much wilderness? I mean, obviously there's not as much well. wilderness, but. I don't know what that was. I know it's more of, like, a rural area, like, outside of Pennsylvania. <laughs> okay, but it's not, like... Or outside of Pittsburgh. Den- it's not, like, tons and tons and tons of trees like that was no. back then. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, at this time, it was a pretty dangerous place to live, but Samuel loved it. He took it as, like, a challenge, and he wa- he thought it was, like, paradise living out there. Yeah. So, now we're on to April 24th, 1856. We are in the 1800s, people. 1800s. And we just want to preface this, too, with saying that all of this information, obviously, they didn't keep track of things as well or have documentation um, as well in the 1800s than we do now. Mm -hmm. So, um, a lot of the articles had a little bit of differing information, but we'll talk about that. um, As best we can. Yeah. So... April 24th, 1856, Samuel Cox, which again was the father, had just finished breakfast in the family's log cabin, and he actually heard his dog barking in the forest and thought, oh, maybe he's barking at a squirrel that's trapped in a tree, like, let me go check it out. Mm -hmm. So he grabbed his rifle, and he was, I mean, especially during this time, and they're in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah. He was desperate to put meat on the table for his family, so he went to the woods to shoot the squirrel. Yeah. So, in one article that we had read, it said that he had shot and killed the squirrel, and he went to return to the cabin, but he actually took a different path on the way back than the way there. Right. So, in hindsight, this could have been a big mistake with what happens later on, because if he had taken the same path back, he would have potentially crossed paths with the children. Right. And... But he took a different path, so he never crossed paths with them. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. So, it's assumed that while Samuel was gone, the little boys left the cabin, maybe trying to find their father or kind of, like, go after him and do what he was doing, you know, yeah, like, like, looking up to out. dad. Yeah. yeah. So, Susanna Cox was under the impression that Samuel brought George and Joseph with him. And when he returned to the cabin, he and his wife both realized that the boys were gone. Yeah. And they called for them, and there was no reply. So then they went looking for Joseph and George, and they rallied neighbors, which, to me, when I'm thinking of this, is absolutely fucking insane. Mm -hmm. In the 1800s, there are no phones yet. Yeah. And and 
you're getting all these neighbors to help you look for your kids, and there's people coming from miles and miles and miles away. They said literally the houses back then were, like, probably two, two and a half miles apart from each other. Yeah, and and that's, like, your neighbor. (laughs) Rallying each other. Yeah. Yeah. So, by that night, there were more than 100 men searching for the boys. That is incredible. Yeah, and I had read that there were, like, boys helping as well. I don't know if boys means actual children or boys, like, young men. Yeah. So, they lit fires in the woods, hoping the boys would see them and return back to the cabin. So, that's some of the things that they did to try to find these children. Ugh. So, April 25th, 1856... There was nearly a thousand people that showed up to help search for the boys at this point. Again, <laughs> mind blowing. Like back how? Then. And actually, even some articles I read said two thousand in total, and then I had some that even was more than that. So I don't know what the exact number was, but there was a shit ton of people looking for these two boys, like traveling from miles away. Right. That's insane. That's crazy. So, a nearby stream that was called Bob's Creek was higher and faster than it usually was due to all the snow melting. It was thought that the boys may have crossed it and drowned while crossing it. Mm -hmm. So, a search of the creek was done, but there was really no luck in finding the boys. Mm. The next day, April 26th, 1856, this is really sad, but people started growing suspicious of Samuel and Susanna Cox. Mm. They thought that maybe they had murdered the boys in hopes of gathering donations from sympathetic neighbors. I don't really see that happening. I'm sorry. No, and I feel like not saying this in a bad way, but back then that kind of stuff just, like, didn't happen. I don't know. Yeah, and, I mean, how much donations were they really expecting to gather that that would make sense to murder their children over back in the 1800s? You know what I mean? any sense. No. So, the Cox's garden and cabin were searched, but there were no clues that the boys were buried there or that there was, like, anything left there um, Mm -hmm. that would hint that they were murdered. The people were searching for the boys and even called in a dowser, um, also known as the local, this is in quotes, voodoo witch doctor. Um, And then they also called in a witch from Somerset County. Mm -hmm. And basically... Um, the definition of dowsing or what a dowser was, a type of divination employed in attempts to locate groundwater, buried metals or ores, gemstones, oil, grave sites, malign earth vibrations, and many other objects and materials without the use of a scientific apparatus. And basically, the voodoo witch doctor also used um, this divining rod, and it was made from a forked branch of a peach tree. That's so interesting. Yeah, and nothing was turned up from that. He didn't, you know, there was nothing that came out of that. Mm -hmm. The witch that they had come in from Somerset County also claimed to know the boy's location, and she actually led a search team through the woods for hours without finding any evidence of the boys. Some people believe that the boys were kidnapped by a band of gypsies. So these are some other theories of what happened at the time. Um, some people thought that the boys were taken by a gang and sold into children's slavery, which... That's fucking awful. Dear God, I... That's horrible. Yeah. Another theory at this time was that they were truly lost in the woods and animals got to them. And oh. that was, like, the most popular theory out of everything, um, until... That's like, that's like Dennis's I know. theory, too. I know. Yeah. I was thinking of his case when I wrote that. Yeah. It's so sad. That's really, really awful to think about. Yeah. So then we're on to May 2nd, 1856, and a local farmer, Jacob Dybert, 
heard about the missing children and had a dream about them on day 10 of them being being missing. And he had actually remarked to his wife that he wished he was able to dream of the boy's location before even having this dream. That's insane that, like, he kind of manifested it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So he dreamt that he walked a path through the woods past a dead deer, a child's shoe, and a fallen bran- a fallen birch tree, and eventually to a group of birch trees in a small ravine. And he, in his dream... Mm-hmm said that he would find the bodies of the Cox boys there. In his dream, he also said that they were sleeping under a tree. He um. found them sleeping. So he said that the tree the, the boys would be found under is different than the other trees surrounding it. Wow. And that it was bent and twisted and the top of the tree was split as if it was struck by lightning at some point. That's so specific, though. <laughs> yeah, and he woke up remembering this, which is insane. Yeah. So, he actually had the same dream for two additional nights, which is even more crazy that this dream kept repeating. Right, and I read somewhere that this dream got more detailed as they kept coming. Uh Uh-huh. And, like, he was getting more detail from them and remembering more as they came. Which is, like, it was meant to happen. Yeah. So... The two additional days were day 11 and 12 of the boys being missing, Mm -hmm. but he refused to tell anyone at first about these dreams except for his wife. Yeah. So, his wife was familiar with the area and told him he should tell her brother Harrison, so his brother-in-law. And on May 7th, which was day 15 of the boys being missing, he decided to tell his brother-in-law Harrison Wysong because... He really felt this dream was, like, a prophecy or some kind of premonition. Yeah. Letting him know where these boys were. I mean, if you're having it multiple times, I could see, like, one time and, like, you know, brushing it off. Yeah. But, like, multiple times with such detail, you would have to check it out. Yeah. I'm sure part of him was a little nervous, though, that he'd be, like... Blamed. Blamed, or people would think he was crazy, you know? That's probably why he told his wife so many... I don't know. Yeah. So, Harrison, which was the brother-in-law, recognized the elements of Jacob Dybert's dream, and the two men went on the search following what his dream entailed. So, Jacob Dybert, the one who had the dream, actually lived about 10 miles from where the Cox children disappeared. Mm -hmm. So, he didn't recognize these scenes in the dream at all. Like, he was seeing all this stuff, but he's like, I've never seen that in my life, in in real life. Like, I I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea where this would be. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Harrison Wysong didn't think the children could have made it that far or across the creek, but they decided to look anyway, and Wysong believed that the stream in Jacob's vision was located about seven miles from Spruce Hollow, and remember, Spruce Hollow is where uh, the Coxes had their house, their cabin. Wow. So, under birch trees in a small ravine... Past a dead deer, a child's shoe, and a fallen birch tree were the bodies of Jacob and George Cox. Fucking insane. Yeah. They said, like, I read an article where it said, basically, they were walking and they saw, like, something first and they were like, oh my god, like, like it's this the start is of it. it. Yeah, and then they're like, okay, next thing we need to look for is the dead deer, and then all of a sudden they came across a dead deer, and they're like, I have the chills. holy shit. Could you imagine being in that situation? Yeah, and getting closer and closer to when you know at the end is going to pot- potentially be these two little boys. Oh my god. That and in his chills. dream, they were sleeping. Yeah. So, 
the boys' bodies were found in the roots of the tree by Gypsy Creek. Mm. And this was now almost two weeks since they disappeared. Searchers hadn't searched that area on the east side of the stream because they didn't think the boys could have crossed without drowning, which makes complete sense that they wouldn't check it if the water was so high. Right. And the boys were thought to have died from starvation or hypothermia. Mm. And... Jacob Dybert was given a cash reward for finding the lost children, which was given by a group of citizens that collected the money, and he actually gave the money to Samuel and Susanna to buy a tombstone for the kids, so he didn't even keep the money. That warmed my heart so much. Yeah. He was probably so upset that he had to be, like, this bearer of bad news, basically. I mean, in yeah. a in a way that it was good that he obviously found them and they had peace of mind, like, mm-hmm. where, he, where the boys were, but... Like, he probably felt so bad that he was even involved in it. I think it's so sad, too, that they were sleeping in his dream. I know. Because, I mean, it's like they were, like, resting. Yeah. At their place of resting. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so sad. So the boys were buried in the Mount Union United Methodist Church Cemetery in nearby Lovely, PA. This is now actually Lincoln Township in Bedford County, PA. The monument can still be seen today at Blue Knob State Park. There's actually like a weird, like a a cage almost around the monument. Yeah. So it stays protected um, and nobody can really mess with it. Yeah. Um, So you can see that along the trail in this Blue Knob State Park. Mm -hmm. It was made and erected by C. Benson Culp of Schillingsburg. Um, the inscription on the stone reads, quote, the lost children of the Alleghenies were found here May 8th, 1856 by Jacob Dybert and Harrison Wysong, Joseph X. S. Cox, aged five years, six months, and nine days, George C. Cox, aged seven years, one month, and ten days, children of Samuel, Samuel and Susanna Cox, wandered from their home April 24th, 1856, Dedicated May 8th, 1906. That's so sad. I literally get chills, th- like, just reading that. Mm-hmm. Imagine reading that while you were, like, walking on that trail in the park or and in the... Wandered from home. That breaks my heart. <laughs> I know. It's so sad. So, some people that hike the trail today say that they've seen children's foot footprint, footprints in the snow um, of, like, two different size, but small wow. children. Wow. Yeah. Some other people say they hear children's voices and like falling rocks from behind them, which if they're if they are there, they're spirits and <laughs> they're little boys, they're harmless. Yeah. They just... I tried looking in a little more into Yeah. Uh like the haunted legend side of it, but yeah. there really wasn't much more than that. Yeah, just little like people, you know, telling little haunted stories here and there mm-hmm. from going to that that park. Mm-hmm. So, life after, Joseph and George Cox were known through the Allegheny Mountains as the lost children of the Alleghenies. This is actually, you know, like we said, what they're still known as. Mm -hmm. In 1906, for the 50th anniversary of the event, the community of Pavia gathered donations for the lost children of the Alleghenies Monument, which we had mentioned, for the Cox family. In 1910, the monument was placed where George and Joseph Cox were found. Visitors have actually started leaving toys at the monument for the boys. 
And if you look at pictures, like if you Google them, we'll post them to our page as well. There is a ton of little toys there. And it's just so, so sad to see. Which is so sweet, but at the same time, those toys did not exist. So their little spirits are probably like, what even is this? Yeah, I know. That's so true. <laughs> what is this thing? Yeah, they probably think it's so cool, though. They like, probably played I've with sticks. <laughs> yeah, for real, though. Um, so then, moving on, Jacob Dybert died in battle during the Civil War at age 42 in Virginia, mm. and this was during the Siege of Petersburg. A monument with his name, um, the Mount Zion Cemetery in Bedford County, he is buried in a mass grave near the Point of Rocks battlefield. So, so there's just a, mo- a little bit about him. So there's, like, a monument separate from where he's actually buried. Yeah. Alison Krauss, which was a bluegrass country singer, released a song written by Julie Lee and John Pennell about the story, um, and it's named, quote, Jacob's Dream. Aww. Yeah. That's kind of cool that they, like, did a little song yeah, rendition yeah. of what it was, because it really was crazy that he had a dream of the, it, pro- it was a prophecy, mm-hmm. of the exact detail I have the chills. I have the full body chills literally thinking about this man dreaming of that. I know. And, like, in his head, he was probably like, "I'm oh, I'm dreaming about it because it's, like, all that the town is talking right. about. But meanwhile, he then literally had yeah. what, like, the detail that they needed to find the boys. That's so crazy. Thank God he did, though. <sighs> yeah. Because who knows if they would have ever been found if not. Because people weren't looking on that side of the river. You know, now I want to go to this monument really bad. Yeah. <laughs> Real bad. <laughs> what does that remind you of? I want a, ch- I want a chocolate chip cookie. Real, Real bad. bad. <laughs> Cinderella story? Yeah. <laughs> with the mom with, like, the puffy lips. Real bad. <laughs> this makes me want... Wait, what did she say about the 4th of July? <laughs> I don't even know. That movie is so fucking good. Not very pretty. And And you're you're not not very very smart. smart. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that wraps up our story. It was very short today. It was short. And like I said, I think it's because this was a time where there wasn't obviously electronic records kept of everything. Yeah. Whereas Dennis' case that we talked about had literally like the 78 day search or whatever yeah of pages pages and pages of exactly what happened exactly the people that were there so there wasn't much documentation which doesn't discredit how important this case was right there just wasn't enough like a lot of information for us to go off of but that's why we still wanted to tell it because we still felt like it was important and people maybe haven't heard about it and And if you're from Pittsburgh, go see it. Yeah, go visit their little memorial. Yeah. Leave them a stuffed animal or something, you know? Or something high-tech that they've never seen. (laughs) Leave them a Game Boy. (laughs) There's no Game Boys anymore. Leave them a Nintendo Switch. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's a hefty one. Yeah, they'll be like, what is this? I know, right? Okay, so because this episode was pretty short, we decided to add in another, like, mini-episode of another missing uh, person, and it was around the same time period. We thought it would just fit in well with today's episode. Yeah. So, today, this... Today's case, I was going to say. <laughs> New day. So, this second half of the episode, we're going to be talking about Charlie Ross, 
and his full name was Charles Brewster Ross, a.k.a. Charlie Ross. He was born May 4th, 1870 in Philadelphia, PA. He lived in Germantown, which was an upscale section of Philadelphia, in a large stone mansion on East Washington Lane. He was four years old at the time of the story. He was a baby. Another baby. So a teeny tiny So one. just like the last case that we talked about. Yeah. This is a, sadly the case of a missing child. Right. Yeah. Oh, so teeny. So his father, who is going to be a big part of this like, he's going to be mentioned a lot in this story. He's mm-hmm. very involved. His father was Christian K. Ross, and he owned a small dry goods store. And Charlie had a five-year-old brother who's also going to be talked about in this story. Some articles say he was six, so he was either five or six. Pretty close to his yeah. age, though. His name was Walter Lewis Ross. And Charlie and Walter were very, very close and constantly together. Oh. Yeah. Our best friend. Yeah. So there were seven children total in this family. Dear God. <laughs> named Stroughton, Harry, Sophia, Walter, Charlie, Marion, and Annie. And Charlie was described as chubby, had long flaxen curls, and, quote, his appearance, intelligence, and disposition made him a favorite with all who met him. Ugh. And that was cited from a historical crime detective article that we are going to put in our work cited. Aww. So he was, like, so lovable. Such a cute little background of this four-year-old. Yeah. So we're going to get into his kidnapping. Um, we'll start with June 27th, 1874. Walter entered the house, which, again, Walter is his um, little bit older brother, where Christian, their father, was holding, and he was holding out his hand filled with candy, Walter was, and he said, quote, a man in a wagon gave it to Charlie and him. That's sketch. Yeah, so he came home, and he's like, Dad, look. So Christian asked if he knew who this man was, and Walter said no, and he said that he and Charlie did not ask for the candy, but it was just given to them. Mm. So during this time period, you know, it kind of could be seen as harmless, you know. Christian later commented that, quote, the only thought that occurred to me was that someone found, was fond of children, had, as an act of kindness, given candy to the boys. So he was like, this is harmless, maybe, you know, he just decided to give him candy. Right. Things back then weren't like they are nowadays. Right. So now we're moving, and that was June 27th. We're moving now to July 1st, 1874, the same year. Charlie and Walter were playing together in the front yard of their house when a horse-drawn carriage pulled up to the house and two men came up to the boys. They offered them candy and fireworks to take a ride with them, and the boys said yes. Yeah, like, three days from then would have been 4th of July, so they were probably like, oh, cool, yeah, we want fireworks. stocked up on our fireworks. Yeah. So they went through Philadelphia, and as they got further, um, it said that Charlie began to cry and wanted to go home. Which is really Mm. sad. He was probably like, something's not right. Yeah. Charlie also asked why they didn't stop at some store to buy the candy. The men told him that they would go to, quote, Aunt Susie's, where they could get a whole pocket full for five cents. So they were kind of just, like, stringing the boys along. They were, like, rationalizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So then they arrived at a store where Walter was told to buy fireworks. He was given 25 cents by the men and went into the, the store to buy them. And while he was in there picking out the fireworks, the carriage left without him. And Charlie was taken. 
Oh my god. Yeah. That's horrible. Imagine what Walter felt going outside and, like, his little brother's gone. His best friend. Yeah. So, around 6 p.m. that day, the boys, or night, the boys were not outside where they were last seen by the maid, and Christian thought nothing of it, assuming they were in the neighborhood somewhere. Again, different times, the kids played outside, like, it, like, And this no was a worries. wealthy neighborhood, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. So, Christian then spoke to a neighbor, Mary Kidder, that said that she saw a wagon pull up to the sidewalk and that Charlie and Walter got into it, then the wagon drove away, which... Mary, did you say something? I know, Mary. Why wouldn't you be like, where are I you mean, going, not, kids? not to like blame it on her because obviously it's not her fault. It's the men who took them's fault. Right. But did she chase after the wagon? Did she question like, what are you doing? Like, kids, do you know those men? Like, you know what I mean? Just I guess it wasn't like being vigilant. Of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Again, different times. Nowadays, people do that. Or may have been, like, thought of as, like, snooping. Like, what if it's their uncle and, like, you're asking where they're going, you know? that's true, yeah. I don't know. So, obviously, when he heard this, Christian, their father, was now very worried. So, he went to the police station. And on his way there, Walter was walking towards him with a man named Henry Peacock that said he found Walter crying and lost in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. Oh, which is poor baby. How do you even know how to get home? I know, and I wonder if I wonder how far Kensington was away be, from there. Right. Because if he had just found him, and these men are in a carriage, really, how Wouldn't far could they have far. gotten at that point? Right. Yeah. So Walter explained what had happened, and he described the two men to his dad. He said that one was a man with a reddish mustache and eyeglasses, and the other was an older man wearing spectacles who was funny-looking with a, quote, monkey nose. We'll talk about that. Yeah. So, Christian's wife, the the boy's mother, was in Atlantic City during this time recovering from an illness, so she had no idea what was going on. Oh, my God. And Christian actually didn't tell her what had happened, and two days later, she found out when he begged for his son's return in the newspapers. That's how she found out. Could you fucking imagine? No. No. He was probably like, I don't want to worry her. Like, I was responsible for them, you know. Horrible. She's sick. I don't want to burden her with this. And then she finds out in the newspapers. Horrible. Yeah. So now we're at the point where I'm going to talk about the ransom. So Christian Ross, again, the boy's dad, started receiving ransom letters The first one was said to have come on July 3rd after Christian had placed a newspaper ad offering $300 for Charlie's return. These were found to be mailed from post offices in Philadelphia and other places. So it was nearby. Mm, So they're still in the area. Yeah. The letters were, quote, written in an odd hand and in a coarse semi-literate style with many simple words misspelled. And that was a wiki quote, but um, that's what it was said the letters were like. Mm Mm-hmm. So, these are some of the first letters that they received, and I might fuck this up because it's really hard to read, but... It's very illiterate. (laughs) Okay, this is the first one. Quote, we has got him and no powers on earth can deliver out of our hand. You will have to pay us before you get him from us and pay us a big cent, too. If you put the cops hunting for him, you is only defeating your, your own end. And there's a lot of misspelling in that. Yes. (laughs) Like, everything is misspelled. Yeah. And then here's another one. Quote, You will see you child dead or alive. If we get you money, you see him live. If no money, you get him dead. 
Hmm. Horrible. And I wonder if they were purposely misspelling things, though, to, like, throw to people make off, you know? I know. I was thinking the same thing. They could have been. Mm-hmm. So, authorities urged Christian not to pay the ransom, as other kidnappers may get the same kind of idea and be like, well, if he's doing it, then I'm going to get money from him, too. Yeah, yeah. He was wealthy. Um, July 7th, 1874, he received a note demanding $20,000 with instructions on how to pay the kidnappers. Christian tried to follow the instructions, but never contacted the kidnappers. Mm. So, these ransom notes usually requested from that point on, like, $20,000, which today is $400,000. That's fucking insane. How do you have the nerve (laughs) to ask for a ransom of that much money? Yeah. Um, he warned police, or I'm sorry, warned against police intervention and threatened Charlie's life if there was no cooperation, is what the ransom notes basically said. Yeah. So, like, don't call the police or he's going to get hurt. Yeah. It's horrible. So, Christian would play along with requests and respond to their letters with personal ads in the newspapers. This kind of, like, bought time. Yeah. While police launched a massive manhunt. Because, obviously, the police were like, do not pay this, like Kelsey said. Yeah. But they still wanted to, like, drag it out and or make them slip up somehow. Right. And this is a quote about... This manhunt, basically. So, quote, Every steamship, canal boat, ferry, stagecoach, and covered wagon traveling into or out of the city was searched. Officers staked out railroad depots and public gathering places, scoured stone quarries, abandoned factories, and vacant buildings, raided gypsy camps, brothels, and other abodes of vice. Eventually, they undertook the extraordinary step of conducting a house-to-house search of the entire city. End Could quote. you imagine that? And back then, that is intense. That's and that huge. was a quote from a Yale Review article that we posted. That's insane. Yeah. So this was the first kidnapping for ransom in the history of the United States. So that's probably also why the police were like, "Do not give any other people this idea." Like, keep it on the DL. Yeah. So they received. Well, Christian received twenty-three ransom letters total wow. over this time period, and the kidnappers may have believed the family was wealthy, which is why they decided to take these boys. I mean, they lived in a mansion. You and know? Re- remember, they like staked out the situation before. Like they came yeah. and gave them candy the night before to be like, oh, okay, this is their routine. They're outside. Yeah, weeks this time. before. Yeah. Yeah. So. What was unbeknownst to them, the Rosses were actually in heavy debt because of the stock market crash of 1873. Wow. And Christian could not pay the ransom, and that's why he, like, went to the police. I wonder if he would have had he had the money. I know. But, I mean, then again, he was kind of, like, pretending like he would, and he still wasn't able to get in contact with them. So they really all along were not planning on giving the boy back, probably. Yeah. So, there were eventually several attempts to provide the kidnappers with ransom money, like, further down the line, mm-hmm. and each time they did not come to collect the money. I don't know if this was, they were actually giving them the sum they were asking for, or they were kind of pretending and putting, like, a little bit. Right. But no one ever came to collect, and um, the communication eventually stopped. That's sad. Yeah. The media had a lot of coverage when this story came out. The kidnapping became national news, and there was heavy press coverage. Um, Prominent residents of Philadelphia asked for help from the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, 
They had millions of flyers printed for Charlie Ross. Wow. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. There was actually a song written by Dexter Smith and W.H. Brockway titled, quote, Bring Back Our Darling, referring to Charlie. Our darling. Our darling baby. He was four years old. Poor little baby. I know. P.T. Barnum, who is actually of Barnum and Bailey Circus, offered $10,000 reward for the boy's safe return. Apparently hoped to exhibit Charlie in his traveling show if he was found. Like, was that part of the fucking deal? So he was like, I'm going to put this money out there and within hopes to bring, get money back for it. Right, because he was so heavily covered in the press that he was like, oh, everybody will want to see the missing child. That's fucked up. That's really fucked up. Yeah. What the hell, P.T. Barnum? I know, I'm not happy about that. No. So now we'll move on to the suspects. On December 13th, 1874, in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, New York, a man named Judge Charles Van Brunt had his house robbed. His brothers, who were, his brother, his name was Holmes Van Brunt, lived next door and went over with uh, the armed men to catch the robbers. So he was like, all right, I'll come over and help. He's like, I'm coming over with my guys, we Uh got our guns. The burglars, who were Bill Mosher and Joe Douglas, were the robbers, and they were recently released from jail. And during this, you know, kind of raid, um, when Holmes came over to help, Mosher was shot and killed at that point in time. Mm. So Douglas was also shot, but he lived for two hours and was able to communicate with Holmes. There's a bunch of different people that were also there, obviously, and everyone's stories differ about what Douglas said. Mm -hmm. But it was a consensus that he mentioned that since he was going to die anyway... He admitted that Mosher abducted Charlie Ross. So, because of, like, these different people's accounts, Mm -hmm. there were also different stories about what exactly Douglas said. Right. One of them that was was that he said Charlie was killed. One of them, he said that Mosher knew where Charlie was, whether he be dead or alive. Yeah. Uh, he said that Charlie would be returned home soon, unharmed to his family, in an account. And then it is also said that his last words were, quote, I have been a very wicked man. Ooh. Which, imagine those being your fucking last words. Ooh. God. So no details were given as to where Charlie actually was in this conversation that yeah, was had. Nothing like hard evidence yeah, of like, where like, he oh, actually we was. took him here. Yeah. Yeah. And another article also stated that police were investigating the kidnapping of a Vanderbilt child, and they found a ransom note for that child as well that closely matched the one for Charlie Ross. Hmm. And it was identified that the handwriting was William Mosher's. That dick. Mm-hmm. Charlie's brother, Walter, was taken to New York City to look at the bodies of Mosher and Douglas, which is absolutely horrifying that a six or five or six year old had to do that that is a horrible dead bo- like he had to look at dead bodies and be like is this the one that took you away yeah. from your brother yeah horrible yeah but i guess i mean he was the only one who could he was the witness yeah, yeah. so he was taken to look at the dead bodies of Mar- mosher and douglas to see if they looked familiar from the carriage ride and he confirmed that they were the two men who took the boys in july Ugh. Mosher had a very distinct nose, which, remember, Walter described as, quote, monkey nose, because the cartilage of his nose was destroyed by either cancer or syphilis, depending on the article. Yeah. 
That's pretty crazy that he was able to identify that so early on and then be like, yep, that's the nose I was talking about. Yeah. I mean, that that right there is just a straight-up link. Yeah. It's him. Yeah. So now we'll move on to the trial. Former Philadelphia policeman William Westervelt was a known associate of Mosher. William was arrested for a connection with the case, just honestly because he knew Mosher, so they arrested him. Mm -hmm. He was tried in 1875 for kidnapping. The trial was held, and it was determined that while William was a friend of Mosher, there was really no evidence of him being connected to the actual crime of kidnapping and holding Charlie somewhere. Mm -hmm. However, he allegedly told Christian, who was, again, Charlie's father, that Charlie had been alive during the time of Mosher's death. Which, Which, like, how would he know that? Yeah. How would he know that? And if he was alive when Mosher was killed and then the other guy was also eventually died from his injuries how where it happened to him yeah it was he living somewhere kept somewhere till he like starved to death was he given to someone and he's alive out there somewhere like and how would he know that i don't know um walter testified actually at the trial that william was not one of the men in the carriage so Mm -hmm. he was able to get up on the stand and say no he wasn't one of the two that was in the the carriage that Mm -hmm. day William was found not guilty of kidnapping, but was found guilty of a lesser conspiracy charge, and he still went to prison for six years. I mean, if he was corrupt, so be it. Yeah, I know. He was a bad man. William said that he swore, and he, like, remained his innocence, that he had nothing to do with Charlie Ross, and he had no idea where he was. Mm. So, this is the aftermath of, you know, years later. To this day, it remains unknown what happened to Charlie Ross. That breaks my freaking heart. I know. Like, his poor family. He had so many siblings. Mm-hmm. Two years later, Charlie's father, Christian, published a book called, quote, The Father's Story of Charlie Ross, the Kidnapped Child. Oh. And that was to raise money to continue the search for him. Oh. I know. I want to read that book. Me too. I can't even imagine I how heartbreaking. His perspective. Yeah. I, know. Oh. I can't even imagine and, like, put myself in those shoes, though. I'm not even a parent, let alone a parent of somebody that had... A child missing. Yeah, God. By 1878, media coverage died down. Christian and his wife continued to search until they died. Oh, God, that makes me sick. So Christian died in 1897, and his wife died in 1912. They followed over 570 leads claiming to know something about Charlie's location. Another article actually says that these were all boys, teens, or men who were claiming to be Charlie, and they were all imposters. That's disgusting. How the fuck do you give somebody false hope like that? We've talked about that before. <sighs> yeah, and, I mean, even on top of the, the imposter side of it, too, the leads, that ha- like, even getting leads like that, it what has is- to be so hard to dig through and differentiate what is actually a really good lead and legit compared to, like, people being fucking assholes. Yeah. So, obviously, none of these imposters and leads turned out to be helpful at all in the search. And the Mm. Rosses spent $60,000 in search efforts for Charlie. Which, how the fuck was much that, like, how much was that back then? Let's think the 20,000. Yeah, the 20,000 was equivalent to 400,000. It was... Like a million dollars. Yeah. 1.2 million dollars. <laughs> oh, Holy Jesus Christ. Shit. And they were in debt. So much and they money. were in debt. And the rest of the years of their life, they spent that much money. Ugh. That's disgusting. Yeah. 
So as Walter grew older and as an adult, he said that he and his three sisters still received letters from middle-aged men claiming to be their brother. Fuck off. Yeah. In 1934, Gustave Blair was a 69-year-old living in Phoenix, Arizona, and he petitioned a court to recognize him as Charlie Ross. Disgusting. He claimed he was abducted, lived in a cave, and adopted by a man that said he was Ross. And Walter said that this was another prank and dismissed it by saying, quote, The idea that my brother is still alive is not only absurd, but the man's story seems unconvincing. We've long ago given up hope that Charles would ever would be found alive. Which is so heartbreaking. So heartbreaking. It really is. I mean, but in the same token, I mean, I obviously would go towards whatever the family was thinking because they know the situation best and they know, like... They have a, if they have a reason to believe that and feel yeah. that, that's probably what it is. But at the same time, what if he really was out there being raised by someone else living his life? You know what I mean? Right. That's I a scary thought. It's fucking terrifying. But yeah. I feel like they can't have that on their minds, you know? Yeah. Unless, what if he was just dumped somewhere and someone who didn't even know about this case found him and was like, let's adopt this boy. Right, and he's still alive and he has no idea. They have no idea yeah. who he is. That's terrifying. So, the court ended up ruling that he was Charlie Brewster Ross in March 1939. Ugh. <laughs> How did they come to that? I don't know. So, the Ross family refuses to believe this, and they don't give him any money or any part of the parents' estate, and Blair moved to L.A. shortly to sell his story to a movie studio, but they didn't want it. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, nah, that's fake. Yeah, and I'm sorry if you... That's what you're doing with realizing that you were this missing child. That's sketch. Sketchy as fuck. Yeah. So he moved around a bit and then died in December 1943, still saying he was Charlie. And people claimed he was a, he was a fake because DNA testing later showed he was a man named Nelson Miller. And no official testing results were reported or released. So this could also be, like, hearsay. Hearsay, right. Yeah. And Walter Ross, sadly, died in 1943, and the Ross's house was torn down in 1926 and is now replaced with the Cliveden Presbyterian Church. That's, like, the site of the kidnapping. Wow. Yeah. If you, for some reason, wanted to visit the site of the kidnapping. Wow. Yeah. So, we always try to put a few good things at the end of cases. We try. Um, And these are beneficial things i think that came out of of unfortunately charlie's kidnapping Mm. and ransom so the saying quote don't take candy from strangers is said to have come from this case Mm -hmm. which i had no idea me either that was crazy me either the charlie project is a huge missing persons database and is named after charlie ross and actually we've used this website as a resource a lot of times for this podcast without even knowing the story yeah <laughs> it's like it gives great identifying features mm-hmm. for um missing people missing children mm-hmm. and we've used it a ton we've resourced we've used it as a resource a lot charlie's case is one of the most famous disappearances in u.s history which is crazy because I honestly had never heard of this. I didn't either. Like, I, this whole story. I feel like we're learning about things in the history of, like, crime that is so important important mm-hmm. to know. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy. And, like, why certain things are happening now because of these cases. Right. It's insane. Yeah. But 
Yeah. So, as always, we include our resources on our Facebook page. Yep. And one of the resources, if you want to deep dive a little more into it, is a breakdown and more info on the letters that were received, the ransom letters. Mm -hmm. It's like what was written in them, what date they, like what happened after they got this letter and that letter. So it's a little bit of more in depth. Yeah. But that was the gist. Yeah. So. Charlie Ross. Poor little Charlie Ross. I feel awful. Yeah, me too. I feel awful that he was, like there were no answers ever found for this child and his family had to die without knowing anything. I know. That's a lot. Yeah. It's just horrible. It's disgusting. Let us know, because I find this interesting, what time period you guys not like to, but like find the most interesting um, to hear about crimes. Yeah. Because me personally... I like late 80s, early 90s stories. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I just find the most interesting. And, like, I feel like I could picture the time period. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's fun to go back in time and cover some of these cases that maybe ha- aren't as talked about as often because of how old they are. Right. Like, even, like, Rasputin's and stuff, you know? Yeah. But... It's just hard sometimes because of the record. Yeah, as you can see with this one, we had to double up because there wasn't enough information to do a full episode with one of them. Yeah. So. I don't know. What's your favorite time period, you think? Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I like ones that, like, ones that fascinate me are kind of like this, where there's historical things tied to it. Right. And, like... And you're like, wow. Beneficial things for solving cases nowadays because yeah. of it. Like, I, I like that tie with it. And I also, I mean, like, like the Rasputin one. Like, I like, like, I don't know. Random ones like that, I think. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't, I mean... Because I've had a few listeners tell me, like... I'm definitely more into this type of case than this type of case. Yeah. And... I can tell you that the ones that I don't like to cover the most are the cold cases. Yeah. Because I like to have... They're mystery. Not that I need closure because right. it, it, I'm not tied to the person, but I like to see the family with closure and I like mm-hmm. to see the victim with closure. Yeah. So the cold cases... The cold cases break my heart a little bit more and are harder for me to Yeah, research. I can see that. They're hard. Yeah. yeah. But... Let us know which one you're most interested by. Yeah, I think the 80s, though, has... Like, 1980s has a lot. Of, I know. And 70s. A lot of shit went down then. I know. Between the 70s and 80s, there was a ton yeah. of crime. Crazy crime. Some people started getting super fucked in the head, I guess, for some reason. It was the drugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was all the it drugs. Was living through the 60s and shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, all right. I mean, it's insane, too, like, thinking with this case that eight late 1800s that was the first time a ransom letter was seen like you didn't have to worry about your kids staying outside all day and like like watching yeah you had to worry but it wasn't as common back then yeah it's like what the fuck changed why did people become more disturbed and horrible yeah i don't know i feel like it's been over the years people have just been getting worse and worse and more fucked up stories come about yeah as things go on I know. I wish there was a way to, like, break it down and know why and, and prevent it. I think media has a lot to yeah, do with it. Technology. <laughs> technology, social media. Not saying that there's not benefits with those things. Obviously, yeah. there are. But there's a, a, 
a side to them that I think has jump-started and caused a lot of bad things that we see today. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, I feel like, in a way, sometimes, although it's help, like, it helps you communicate with people, it also hinders personal connection with people. Human personal Human, connection. Yeah. 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 Like, you are forced to text people instead of meet them in person, face-to-face, talking to them, to yeah, have a conversation. building human bonds and stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Crazy. I know. Oh, God, I can deep dive into that side of it forever as well because that fascinates me. Just, like, the, hu- like the, the human brain, that's just insane to me. I know. I agree. Yeah. Alrighty. As we stretch. As I'm stretching and yawning, I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that's the end of this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Please continue to give us suggestions. We love your suggestions. Yeah, listener stories, share it with us. Come on the podcast. Send us stuff if you don't want your voice to be on the podcast. We will read it for you. I love reading it. And give you all the creds. I love reading it, and I will not read it until I read it on the podcast because that's more exciting. Yeah, but we want to go enjoy this nice weather today, so we're going to We're going to peace out. Bye, guys. Bye. See you next week. See ya. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook